Welcome back to Betrayal Trauma SOS. My name is Jenny Brockbank, and I love learning with you and healing with you. Today, we are learning about surrendering outcomes in relation to loved ones who have an addiction or a sex addiction. Let's learn together. I want to start by giving a shout out to some new listeners in Australia, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. I'm so honored to have you join with us in healing. All sources can be found at the bottom of each episode description on your listening platform of choice and also at BetrayalTraumaSOS.com. That way, you can listen without taking notes about sources. Please note that this isn't therapy and I'm not a therapist. I highly recommend seeking qualified professional help for your situation. Also, this episode is geared towards spouses and family members whose loved one has a sex addiction. However, many principles apply to other types of addiction as well. Welcome. Next week, I will be doing a question and answer episode. I welcome recovery and or personal questions regarding my own recovery by contacting me on Instagram, Facebook, or from the contact tab on the BetrayalTraumaSOS.com website. I certainly don't have all the answers, but can offer what I have learned as well as consult with others who are farther ahead in recovery. I do pledge confidentiality and anonymity. In last week's episode on grace, which is episode 12, Marisa shared her personal experience with control. I'd like to play that for you all again as it strongly relates to our discussion today. I know God's grace is at work in my life when I am blessed with enabling power beyond my own. In the beginning of my recovery, I would cope with my betrayal trauma and husband's addict behavior by controlling others and outcomes. I would do everything possible to ensure that the atmosphere in our home was calm enough to not trigger my husband. One example of my control was to micromanage my young son's evening routine in hopes we'd both get enough sleep. Getting enough sleep meant we'd both be in a good mood and not upset by my husband. I became like a drill sergeant with a tight grip on his napping and eating schedules. I only allowed certain non-stimulating activities the two hours prior to bedtime so that he'd be drowsy enough to fall asleep on time. I'd control the volume and energy with which we all spoke and interacted. Over time, I began to recognize the frenzied feeling inside and saw the way my behavior actually increased the tension in our home. I wanted to change this controlling behavior, but felt it nearly impossible to let go of my tight grip. As I continued to work the 12 steps through SA Lifeline, I noticed a gradual but definite change. Through no conscious effort of my own, I began to recognize when I was going into control mode over our evening routine. Beyond just recognizing my impulse to control, I was blessed by some unseen power with the ability to actually let go. This pattern of recognizing and surrendering trickled into other areas of my life as well. I began to believe in a friendly, present, and supportive God. Now I am quicker to remember that He is even in the smallest details of my life. I am more able to allow situations to unfold without my intervention and trust that my life and the lives of my loved ones are unfolding just as they should. God's grace helps me to move forward knowing that He will strengthen me with power beyond my own to face whatever lies ahead. 
truly grateful that Marisa was so vulnerable to share her experience. In my own way, I relate strongly with Marisa's story. I have definitely tried to control my husband's addiction. For the first 17 and a half years of our marriage, I thought I was doing a great job of controlling it by being a wonderful wife, almost never withholding sex, and oftentimes offering it more often. Imagine my shock as we sat in a formal disclosure with our therapist to learn that not only had I not controlled his addiction with sex, but I also made it worse. With eyes wide open that I was truly powerless, I was able to make better choices and set better boundaries. Episode 5 titled, You Can't Fix Sex Addiction with Sex, goes into more detail about that issue if you'd like to check that out. The question is, why do we try to control? That question carries with it heart-wrenching answers. The why is important, and too often we focus on the resulting behaviors without looking deeper. When we don't look at the why, it is easy to start living in a breeding ground for shame. The why helps us to stay curious and to be gentle with ourselves as we strive to change our shape. I hope that you will join me in self-compassion as we take a few minutes and explore the why. Why would we try to control our situations? I'll offer a few examples of how we control, and I invite you to join me in listening to why people might control. Some who are listening may relate with the actions, but have a different reason behind them. If you can pick out a different reason than my thought, that's wonderful awareness. One way that I tried to control my husband's addiction is by not leaving my home when he was there. If I left, he was more likely to act out with his addiction. So, to avoid this pain, I tried to rescue him from addiction and me from heartache. I was my own jailer in a self-made prison, ensuring his sobriety and my peace. Or so I thought. My why was this. I was so desperate to not experience betrayal that I chose isolation for years at a time. I didn't realize that this behavior of mine kept me in a perpetual state of fear. Nor did I realize that I wasn't actually controlling his addiction. A big why for many women in particular is fears around financial repercussions. In her book, Intimate Deception, Dr. Sherry Keffer discusses the financial side of things. The following is a quote from a woman named Neela as she says, quote, He told me I'd never make it on my own. What scares me the most is I think he's right. Close quote. This understandable financial fear can be crippling, and for some, it leads us to try to control outcomes. When we are fearful of how we are going to take care of ourselves or maybe our children or other dependents, the stakes are significantly higher as basic necessities really might be at risk. While financial security is not the subject for today, I want to add that in regards to this subject, Dr. Keffer says, quote, Many women are financially frozen and don't know how to gain access to their husband's financial information. I tell women, knowledge is power, and knowing about the finances in your home leads to empowerment. I am not trying to say that it's going to be easy or your fears will somehow disappear, but it does mean that every single step you take becomes a financially informed one. We can't let our fears about money keep us in the dark. Close quote. Another why might be the desire to not experience sexual abuse or violence. 
I'm certain that most everyone who hears this will be able to join with me in empathy as our hearts reach out to those who are striving to not be harmed in such a tragic and life-altering way. Some might be striving to keep the perpetrator in a calm state so that their chances of abuse that moment are diminished. Addiction and abuse often go hand in hand. Truly heartbreaking, and I'm sending an abundance of compassion to anyone that relates to this type of scenario, along with my encouragement to seek help. Yet another why might be that we feel a need to know everything about their addiction. Because addiction and dishonesty go hand in hand, we so often don't know our reality. Not knowing reality can, in and of itself, trigger trauma. For me, this type of trauma is very severe. Not knowing my reality, however, can easily lead to hypervigilance, which includes obsessively checking internet history, phone messages, or maybe hiring a detective. I want to add that this is a fine line that we walk and is not always clear-cut when we are using intuition as a tool in this process. In The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, she mentions that knowledge is part of intuition. More on this is discussed in Episode 8 titled Intuition. You were right and you knew it. In case it's helpful, I will add a side note that I have felt heavenly guidance to search for information that I really needed to know. I have also searched for information from a very desperate place of fear that only made insecurity increase. I have a personal boundary that I don't search for information unless guided by the Spirit because that behavior has proved personally harmful to me. I am learning to pay attention to how I am feeling and strive to not act out of fear. Some try to control the environment of their homes to control addiction, or maybe mood. Remember Marisa's story that I played earlier? I relate to this as well. My husband would become explosively angry when our home was too noisy and chaotic, or when someone would move his things. I tried to avoid the explosions of anger by keeping six children at unreasonable levels of quietness and by doing my best to keep everyone far away from my husband's belongings. I expected everyone to walk on eggshells. Some might make sure that dinner is served at exactly the right time each day, or to provide as peaceful of an atmosphere as possible. While there are various reasons that we try to control the atmosphere, my why was to control angry outbursts. Another why that I strongly relate with is that I thought that if I could keep my husband happy in the department of sex, that I wouldn't have to be injured over and over again by his turning to pornography. Certainly, I could just provide for his needs and desires in this area, I thought. I thought that if he turned to pornography, then I wasn't doing a good job as his wife. I also tried to control the connection between us with sex. I look back with compassion as I recognize that our emotional connection was broken and sex often was the only time that my husband and I could connect. I genuinely think that I did the best with the information that I had at the time. To avoid feeling like a failure and to try to control his addiction, I almost never withheld sex. I learned in our formal disclosure exactly how futile my efforts were in that department. And that I sometimes made things worse. Others might have the opposite problem than I did with sex, and they might try to withhold sex to control the addiction. I want to interject that I am definitely not saying that withholding sex is an inappropriate boundary. Boundaries, however, are to keep people safe and not to control. 
Evaluating motives is critical. One of the greatest heartbreaks about addiction is the lack of meaningful connection, as was somewhat addressed earlier. This causes isolation. That is horrific. Living in isolation while in the presence of the one who is supposed to be our helpmeet can cause significant and horrific pain along with feelings of isolation. For me, it also causes trauma. It's easy to see that someone might try to control getting a connection by using various tactics. As I mentioned earlier, I tried it with sex. Some have viewed pornography with their loved one in a bid for connection. Others might view pornography to compare themselves, wondering what their spouse sees in the other person, wondering, in pain, if they are truly enough. Some people choose to have an affair after learning about the affair of their spouse. One why that some do this is to have influence over the emotions of their spouse, perhaps hoping that they will understand the pain inflicted. Of course, these types of behavior muddy the waters and lower individual countenances while causing greater personal and relational damage in the long run. Sometimes we might try to control by allowing others to misuse us. In the Essanon 12 Steps Blue Book, a woman shares her experience of allowing men to misuse her by allowing men to use her cars, apartment, food, phone, drugs, body, and more. Our why for this might be to feel valuable, wanted, or needed. One of the most heart-wrenching ways that some try to control pain and addiction-related things is in regards to death. When the idea of not being on this earth any longer is a relief, we can hopefully wake up to the severity of our situations. I've experienced some things in relation to this, and will share one of my more mild experiences. A couple of years ago, as I was running an errand, the thought came to me that maybe my husband would wake up to his addiction if I were to die or be seriously injured in a car crash. My desire to control his emotions and addiction was strong. I greatly appreciate one of my therapists normalizing these emotions for me as she said something along the lines of this. The brain looks for the fastest way to escape pain, and that's death. It was relieving to learn that my brain was just trying to help me with the severe pain that I was experiencing. I want to add that if anyone listening to this episode finds themselves in a situation where they feel unsafe towards themselves, to please seek professional assistance right away. For anyone who might need it, the phone number for the National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. One last why that I will share in regards to controlling addiction is related to our physical appearance. Recently, one woman mentioned that she can't compete with 18-year-olds too true, and it's easy to forget that this isn't a competition, as the enemy is addiction and not the 18-year-old. Hopefully, we can all move towards self-compassion in this area, as self-worth is obviously under heavy artillery fire. When our loved ones turn away from us to find pleasure in airbrushed and altered images, or younger bodies, or bodies that seem to defy aging, or who perhaps have never born children, or even just to use the body for sex, etc. It's tempting to turn to unhealthy ways of addressing these issues. Generally speaking, some have tried unhealthy dieting, 
wore clothing to please others and not themselves, applied lots of makeup to hide behind, or maybe even wear baggy clothing to not be noticed. In desperation, eating disorders can develop, and money can be misused to fuel a desire for physical perfection in an effort to make our loved ones notice us, or sometimes to become more invisible. If you, like me, relate with any of these things, or perhaps another issue related to appearance or self-worth, please know that you are not alone in this. The damage of this can be extensive, and it's easy to lose who we are when our spouses objectify perfect bodies. Episode 7 titled, I Am Sacred of the Betrayal Trauma SOS Podcast, might be a good place to start to find healing from self-worth issues. I certainly relate, and many, many others relate as well. You aren't alone. In case it's helpful, I'll add a link to a trauma inventory for partners of sex addicts, otherwise known as the TIPSA. I learned about the TIPSA when I was reading Treating Trauma from Sexual Betrayal by Dr. Kevin Skinner, and Dr. Skinner helped to develop the TIPSA. When I participated in this inventory a couple of years ago, it was eye-opening as to the severity of what I had gone through, and also helped me to recognize how unmanageable my life had become. It helped me better see my whys and to have more self-compassion. Here's a question for each of us to consider. What would life look like if we could let go of control and really live again? What hobbies might we take up? What friendships might we cultivate? And what would our homes look like? It's lovely to dream sometimes. From the book Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender by David R. Hawkins, he says this, quote, The more you pull on the rope to hitch yourself up to where you want to be, the more frazzled it becomes. Possibly, you might be wondering, isn't there an easier, better way? Are you willing to let go of the rope? Close quote. What's the solution then? How can we live life more fully? What can we do to no longer live in fear? What can we do to let go of our frayed and frazzled ropes? One tool that can help in recovery is that of surrender. I'm still a student of surrender, and I'm learning with you today. Letting go of the rope looks different for everyone. Surrender for me is more of a process and is a continual effort. Consider from the last episode the story of Aaron. Aaron felt strongly that the boundary that God wanted her to implement was to separate from her husband. Aaron talks about how scary that boundary was to implement as a stay-at-home mom of five who hadn't worked in 15 years. She also says that it was the most courageous thing that she has ever done. Beautiful. Boundaries can be scary to implement because it can be difficult to surrender what the other person does in response. When we can make boundaries that honor the sacred being that we are, based on safety, we surrender outcomes. This is bravery at its finest. For me, when I finally started to leave my home, which had been my self-imposed prison for several years, I felt significant relief, mixed with some fear. I had to make the decision to allow my husband the opportunity to choose acting out in his addiction or to choose recovery. In truth, he did choose addiction at times, but I finally had enough tools to implement boundaries when he did. I came to learn that I was powerless over his addiction, but I wasn't helpless. Doesn't the thought of living in peace sound lovely? 
To live in peace is a strong desire of mine. But how do we do that? How do we achieve that level of serenity? Let's explore. Oftentimes, it's easy to get lost in the big picture of our situations. This can result in severe overwhelm, because for a job like that, a bulldozer is likely the answer. (laughs) Bulldozers aren't a good idea for most situations, however. For me to surrender, my first step is to focus on the next right thing. I have bull-in-a-china-shop tendencies when I feel trapped or cornered by the effects of addiction. My fight-or-flight mechanism takes over, and I can cause real damage in this state. However, taking a deep breath and figuring out, with God, the next right thing is often my first step in the surrender process. If you've seen Frozen 2, you will likely remember the song, The Next Right Thing. See if some of these lyrics from that song ring true to you as a family member of someone who struggles with addiction. Quote, But a tiny voice whispers in my mind, You are lost. Hope is gone. But you must go on and do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It is all that I can to do the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take, but break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. Close quote. I put a link to the Next Right Thing YouTube video and to purchase Frozen 2 in the sources section if either of those are good fits for anyone in this audience. Along these lines is the concept of daily bread. The following story might not ring true to people of all faiths, so I invite you to take what you like and leave the rest. After the Israelites miraculously walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, They faced another terrible dilemma. There was a real and present danger of starvation. How were they going to feed so many people in the wilderness? God had the answer, and it was manna. God would provide for their needed nourishment one day at a time, except that they could gather twice as much for the Sabbath day so that they did not have to labor for food on the Sabbath. Of this experience, D. Todd Christofferson says the following, quote, By providing a daily sustenance one day at a time, Jehovah was trying to teach some faith to a nation that over a period of some 400 years had lost much of the faith of their fathers. He was teaching them to trust him, to look unto him in every thought, doubt not, fear not. He was providing enough for one day at a time except for the sixth day, they could not store manna for use in any succeeding day or days. In essence, the children of Israel had to walk with him today and trust that he would grant a sufficient amount of food for the next day, on the next day, and so on. In that way, he could never be too far from their minds and hearts. When we choose to rely day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and sometimes even breath by painful breath on God. We surrender control to Him. We ask Him about the next right step and choose to keep Him near our heart. 
For me, learning to pray always by keeping a constant conversation with deity in my heart is one of the most effective tools for relying on him when steps seem difficult and sometimes even impossible to dredge up the courage to take. This constant communication is a way for me to understand the next right step and also helps me to have the courage to take it. Oftentimes, manna is so much more than food. The process of surrender is different for everyone. In therapy, 12 steps, and from some other sources, I have had the privilege of hearing how others surrender. I will share some ways that people do this, and you can see if any of this sounds like a good fit for you to experiment with. I once attended a Three Key Elements event where they gave the suggestion to take time to write down what we are upset about with raw honesty. The next step is to get rid of the paper. As a group, we took a few minutes to write down the things that were painful, and when we were done, we tore up and threw away our papers. I do remember feeling some relief as I threw that out. Part of my group therapy program was to create a surrender box. People could create their own boxes, and I saw some beautiful and creative boxes. A surrender box can be any kind of a container, like a jar. The basic concept is to write down what we would like to surrender to our higher power and then place it in the surrender box. A friend of mine places a picture of Jesus on top of the things that she surrenders. I love the imagery of that. In the SA Lifeline program, the basic process for surrender is to write down what we would like to surrender, place it in a surrender box, or my friend typically throws hers in the trash, and then to contact someone usually a sponsor, to say the surrender out loud. I've heard that there is great power in saying it out loud to another person. For any visual listeners, I gain permission to share what my friend does when she surrenders. I can't do justice to how beautiful this was as she demonstrated her process for me, but I will share the basic concept. She first identifies where she feels the burden that she would like to surrender in her body. She then uses her hand to imagine drawing out the pain or burden, and then lifts her hand holding her burden heavenward. She then imagines the hand of God reaching down to take it as she hands it to him. Isn't that beautiful? For me, I have imagined laying my burdens at the nail-scarred feet of my Savior, and others imagine laying their burden in the lap of their higher power. Discovering what works for you is a personal and valuable journey. It might look different at various seasons of life as well. I greatly appreciate reading about a time when real Ann Croshaw surrendered her situation in her book titled, What Can I Do About Me? She had just received a painful disclosure from her husband that he had been arrested for soliciting a prostitute. She says, quote, In that moment, I surrendered to God. I turned my hands and my tear-filled eyes up to heaven and said, Take him. I can't do this anymore. I have done all that I know how to do. I can't do this. Close quote. I love the visual of her raising her hands to heaven and giving her husband to God. Can you do the same? Can I? Giving our loved ones to God is most often a process with defining moments. For those who believe in Christian doctrine as I do, I cannot leave this subject without discussing the ultimate act of surrender, and that to me is Jesus Christ. Again, take what you like and leave the rest. While suffering the atonement, amidst exquisite pain, 
and having blood come out of every pore, Jesus said, quote, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Close quote. That's Luke twenty-two forty-two. On a much smaller scale, I certainly relate with this feeling. In my own small way, I too have not wanted to drink gall. Who wants to experience broken covenants that accompany broken hearts? Who wants to experience physiological changes in their brains that hijack their nervous systems and create unwanted responses? If we could avoid the gall presented to us or pray that reality away or heal instantly, certainly we would. After all, who wants to know the pain of betrayal or the resulting trauma? The times when I have said, Thy will be done and meant it, have been defining moments in my relationship with God. When I willingly partake of the bitter cup, down to the last drop, I come out of such experiences a changed person. I come out knowing God a little more. I'm infused with a little more humility and have greater empathy for others. My trials, even trials of betrayal, have the power to transform into wonder as I glory in what God is making me into. It's okay for this to be a work in progress as our eyes start to see new realities. Surrender is a journey with many destinations along the way and not a one-time event. Surrender for me has looked like walking out the door when I was fairly certain that my husband would act out in his addiction and I would be subject to the consequences. It has looked like not using sex to manipulate my husband's mood or to gain a false sense of connection. At times when I don't allow others to treat me like a welcome mat, I surrender the fear of becoming unneeded or unwanted. When I practice self-care, I surrender that I have needs, and so on. Surrender for me is striving to be present today as I become grateful for my reliance on daily bread instead of expecting large and miraculous solutions to instantly solve things. It is accepting with ample compassion that I am not and cannot be perfect at this time. Thank you for joining me today on Betrayal Trauma SOS. I am so glad that we get to heal together because you chose to tune in. Next week, I am doing a Q&A and welcome your questions. I welcome you to contact Betrayal Trauma SOS with questions on Instagram, Facebook, or by using the contact tab on BetrayalTraumaSOS.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please consider leaving five stars and subscribe so that we can heal together another time as well? Betrayal Trauma SOS. Let's heal together.